Now let's read a second portion from God's word and we'll take it from the same prophecy. The prophecy of Amos. And reading this time in chapter 8. Amos and chapter 8. And we'll read the whole chapter. Thus the Lord showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them any more. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river heave and subside like the river of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day the fair virgins and the strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria and who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and they shall never rise again. Again we pray the Lord's blessing to follow the reading of his own word. And let's Turn our thoughts now with God's help to the verse uh, in chapter 8, in the chapter that we read there, verse 11, where we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So the Lord will send a famine, a famine of hearing the words 
of the Lord. Now, quite often over recent weeks, I've felt led to speak to you on the theme of God's judgment. And I make no apology for that because his judgments are abroad in the land. And it would be a strange thing when his judgments were abroad in the land if his preachers said nothing about them. This verse brings us to the greatest judgment that can befall any individual or any group of people, short of the last judgment itself. And that is a famine of hearing God's word. And very often this particular judgment, a famine of the word, is a judgment that precedes God's final judgment, either upon a people or an individual. Before we are summoned to his judgment seat, very often God ceases to speak to us, and we are more or less dead men walking, and that is something to be feared. Now, it's often said that we don't appreciate what we have until we lose it, and very sadly, because we're sinners, that's true. And if at any point we become unthankful for God's gifts, or if we become selfish with God's gifts, he may very well remove these gifts, and he's quite entitled to do so. And at the same time, if we humble ourselves, God may well restore them, until, of course, at last his judgment is final. And as we thought last week, we lose everything that we have. Now, in the morning, I referred to people just a few weeks ago who were running around the supermarkets looking for something that used to be plentiful and something that they took for granted, something very basic, things like flour and oil. Now, what we have in the verse is more or less the same kind of thing. You have people who had plenty of something and who took it for granted, now running around trying to find it, and they're not able to find it at all. Now, sadly, the thing that they had plenty of was the word of God. The thing that they took for granted was that same word of God. And now here they are, running around, wandering from sea to sea, from north to east, running to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord that used to be so abundant in Israel, and they shall not find it. Now, I hope that will not come to be true in your life or in mine, that the day will come when the word of God ceases to speak to us and ceases to be precious to us. Now, because these are very important things, let's look at this famine, this very distinctive famine of hearing the word of the Lord. And let's look first at why the famine came in Israel. And then we'll look particularly at what the famine looks like. And then last of all, we'll look at how the famine might be prevented or how indeed in God's grace it could still be removed. So why did the famine come? What does the famine look like? And how might it be prevented? Well, then let's begin with how, no, sorry, with why the famine came. 
And I think there's two ways of answering this. The first way of answering it is to say that ultimately the famine came because God sent it. The days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. I send it. So this isn't an ordinary providence because God, of course, does everything. But when God draws attention to something he's doing, that means it's an extraordinary providence. It is something unusual. Now, it's always important to know the difference between God's ordinary providence and his extraordinary providence. That's how we know, really, when God is speaking particularly to ourselves as individuals or as churches or as nations. It's how we know, for example, when as individuals or as a people we ought to fast because we recognize that God is calling us in and through an extraordinary providence. I am the Lord, he says, there is no other. I make peace and I create calamity. Now that's rather unfortunately, perhaps in the uh, King James Version translated, I create evil. And uh, that can be rather misleading. The word clearly means their catastrophe or calamity. I create calamity. Um, now, it's important to remember these things because I've heard many teachers of God's word not accept that God is speaking to us distinctly through this virus, that the judgment of God is in it and upon us as a materialistic people. And they'll say quite overtly things like this, that we don't want to say such a thing in case it puts people off God or off the gospel. Now, it's quite extraordinary that people should say that kind of thing, especially if they are called prophets or teachers of the word of God. I mean, no wonder people like that are rather reluctant to mention hell if they can't speak of a virus as coming from God. But God has sent the virus. It is a distinctive providence. It is an extraordinary providence, and the Lord has sent it. And it is the Lord who sends this famine of the word of God on the land. So that's the first reason it comes, because God sent it. But of course, that only pushes back the question. Why does God send it? After all, we know from the scriptures that God does not willingly afflict the children of men. And uh, as I've mentioned a few times recently, with every judgment, there's mercy in it. Why? Is this judgment coming? Well, it's no surprise that the answer is sin. Sin is the only thing that brings the judgment of God. But it's persistent sin. It's sin in the face of God's rebuke and in spite of God's tender rebuke. And it's a sin that's ever growing in Israel in heinousness before God. It's a sin that's getting worse and worse. We ought never to forget that some sins are worse than others. And there are some people who say that all are the same. Of course, they're not the same. Our catechism reminds us that some sins are more heinous than others. Now, the problem is that Israel is groaning under the weight of its own transgressions. And you see these right throughout Amos' prophecy. Uh, Amos was sent to the kingdom of Israel not long 
before it was taken. Um, I can't just say taken captive by the Assyrians because the nation was effectively more or less blown into oblivion by the Assyrians. But Amos was almost a last word to the people. And what he highlights very often might surprise us in the scripture. What he highlights is the exploitation and the oppression of the poor. Now, of course, many of those poor were the choicest people of the land. They were the people of God, as they very often still are. Uh, you, you often find that those who are rich uh, in faith are quite poor in the world's terms. Not always by any means, but you quite often find it. And there were many in those days in Israel, obviously, who were poor in this world, but nonetheless rich in faith. Now, he describes the condition of these uh, well-off people uh, earlier in the prophecy. There's a very vivid description of them in chapter 6, where they have their summer and winter houses, and they're lying on their ivory beds. We're told that they're singing idly to music, and they're drinking wine in bowls. And of course, by drinking wine in bowls, we're led to think of people who have such a a luxurious and opulent lifestyle that it's not enough to use a glass. They have large bowls in which they drink their wine more or less through the day. And to add the insult to the injury, we're told that they were not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. In other words, the sufferings and the pain of the people of God for a whole host of reasons throughout the land were of no concern to these people. And as well as that, incredibly luxurious, rich, and opulent lifestyle, there was a decadence too. And it's the kind of decadence that very often comes when there's excessive wealth without the knowledge of God. He tells us graphically that a father and a son go into the same girl. What that tells us effectively is that, again, boundaries are down and sexual boundaries are down. So the society isn't just rich. It is decadent. Now, friends, the rich as well as the poor will always be with us. Christ told us that the poor will always be with us, but so indeed will the rich. And there's no sin in being either, rich or poor. But just as we saw in the morning, if, if there's a special warning to the poor not to be envious of the rich and not to covet what the rich people have, So there's a special warning to the rich to make sure that they never exploit the poor or that they don't help to impoverish them, that they don't become wealthy, as it were, on their backs. And that's to the fore a lot in this prophecy because these rich people were bribing officials. They were corrupting the courts of justice. They were taking the clothing of poor people as a pledge when they couldn't actually pay what they owed, something that was forbidden by the law of God. They were using intimidation. There was high taxation being charged on the back of the poor people and high rates of interest. And as well as that, there's this relentlessness in their pursuit for gain. You'll notice in the passage that we just read here in chapter 8 and in verse 5, Midway through the verse, they are making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit. So they're rigging the market so that they underpay the seller all the time 
and they overcharge the buyer. Everything is worked out for their own benefit. And as far as the things of the Lord are concerned, well, these things are just in the way of business. They're in the way of business. They say, when will the new moon be passed? Again, verse 5. Now, the new moon was one of the appointed days when Israel would gather to worship. So it was a holy day under the old covenant. Well, they say, when will it be passed so that we may sell grain? That's what's on their minds. And again, the Sabbath, the holy day, and not just under the old covenant, but under the new covenant too. When will it be over, they said, so that we may trade wheat? That sums up this consumerist and materialistic society. If we look at our own nation, if you even go back 50 odd years or so, there was still a Sabbath kept in so many parts of the land. People would lay aside their business, lay aside every concern, sometimes lucrative. I remember when fishermen who used to earn an awful lot of money in the summer months would come in and tie their boats on a Wednesday evening when a communion began and they wouldn't go back out until the Tuesday morning when the communion was over. Because the worship of the Lord took priority over their own gain. But all that's been swept aside. And why has it been swept aside? Well, for wealth and for gain. And it's very often on the back of people. People who would still lack a Sabbath, who would value a Sabbath for themselves or a Sabbath for their families. But I mentioned recently that God grades his judgments. He escalates them. Escalates them as needed. Uh, if you remember, I spoke about the moth nibbling away and then the lion roaring. Now, in the first passage we read, you'll note that God had showed his displeasure before in different ways. We read in chapter 4 and in verse 6 that God had sent cleanness of teeth or a famine of food. Clearly not a severe one, but a shortage nonetheless. In verse 7, we're told that God sent a drought. Now, it's interesting in connection with the drought, you see. God says that he sent rain on some cities and he withheld it from other cities so that some cities had to make arrangements to bring a water supply from other cities. Now, all you can say about that is that it's just an inconvenience, you see. The whole situation could have been so much worse than that, but it's an inconvenience. And a reminder to God, and perhaps he sends, he does, he sends these um, droughts and his wisdom upon certain cities, sends the rain and withholds it. But he's doing the judgment. Again, he says, he spoiled their harvest and he sent the locusts. Now, many of us have been reading recently about the terrible plague of locusts in Africa. Locusts are a serious threat to everyone's livelihood and harvest. Then he says in verse 10 that he sent a pestilence, a disease amongst the people. But I don't know if you noticed, I'm sure you did when we read that passage, that all the way through there was a refrain. And the refrain is, yet you have not returned to me. I gave you cleanness of teeth, yet you have not returned to me. I withheld rain from one city and gave rain on another yet you have not returned to me. I blasted you with blight and mildew, 
and your locusts devoured everything, yet you have not returned to me. I sent a plague after the manner of Egypt, yet you have not returned to me. I overthrew some of you, just as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, yet you have not returned to me. Now how solemn that is. And you know, we've got to take that, not just in terms of what God's doing nationally. What God's doing nationally is just on a macrocosmic level, what he's doing on a microcosmic level with each one of us individually. What has God done in your own life? Has he sent judgments over recent weeks and months and perhaps years? One thing may be on top of another to the point that you've wondered, well, what exactly is befalling me? My life's falling apart or my family's falling apart, my home or my business. But, but what is it doing to you? Yet you have not returned to me. Um, eventually the Lord's people waken up and they're drawn near to himself. That's what trials will do to them. But you'll notice to these people, nothing seems to change them and nothing was going to change them. The fact of the matter is that in a few short years, the whole of Israel were to be taken, uh, well, like I said, just about blown to oblivion as a nation. And it could be that this virus, you know, is, is just the beginning of woes for ourselves, could it not? What warrant have we got to say that it's the beginning, of the, uh, the beginning and the end of God's dealings with us? What warrant have we got for saying that? If there's no good response, what else may come? I mean, I, I look around our own home and the gardens are full of people having parties and enjoying themselves. It certainly hasn't made these people think or reflect upon God or upon a Sabbath. So why should you be struck anymore, as God said to Israel? Perhaps the most damning sin of all that came to Israel was the way that they began to show contempt for the word of God. Um, now, just a very few short years again after this, Isaiah addressed one of his prophecies to Israel. Most of Isaiah's prophecies are addressed to the southern kingdom of Judah. And indeed, in Isaiah's day, the northern kingdom of Israel is eventually taken captive. But Isaiah addresses a few uh, words to Israel. And he highlights the fact that they've begun to laugh at God's word and at the preachers of God's word. Oh, they're saying every time we hear it, it's just precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. So they're mocking the word and mocking the way that the word of God is put across. Now that goes back to what I said a minute ago. The mockery of the things of God is a precursor to God's most severe judgments. And whatever chair we sit in, don't sit in the scorner's chair. But whatever bad or evil you do in your life, don't let it be sacrilege. Don't let it be blasphemy. Don't let it be the corruption of the most holy things, because these are the things that precipitate the wrath of God. And I suppose it's no great surprise that this visitation of a famine of the word of God falls upon a people who have become so decadent that the things of God are there only to be mocked at and to be laughed at. But is that not our own society too? There's no doubt amongst all the decadences that are revealed in our nation, the attitude to Christianity and the attitude to God, the ease with which his name is blasphemed, 
and with which his cause is ridiculed. These things speak of a nation that is crying out to God for judgment and for vengeance. So it's no surprise, as I said, that God was just at this very time slowly raising up the nation of Assyria. And little did anyone think that the reason that particular nation was becoming strong was to actually scatter the people of God into near oblivion. As I said, Israel never recovered from the scattering. I'm not talking about the Jewish people. I'm talking about the northern kingdom of the Jewish people. Not, not, sorry, not the tribe of Judah, but the northern kingdoms. God is raising up other nations. What role are they going to have to play in our own? Do you ever think about that? What role is China going to play in our nation? What, what role is Saudi Arabia going to play in our nation? So the, the, the judgment that God sends, the last one before their scattering, is this withdrawal of his own word. Well, that's then why he sends it. The second question is, what does the famine of God's word look like? And I think in connection with that, I could say to you that it can take three forms. The first form of a famine is the withdrawal of his written word. Now, I think you would probably say that that's not very likely. There are millions of copies available of it uh, in our own land. And of course, it's available everywhere online. But as I said in the morning, it's nothing to God to remove every single copy of his word from the land. Just like it would be nothing for God to remove every loaf of bread and every packet of flour and every bottle of oil. Nothing. He only did a little and we were running around looking for it. Do you think it's impossible for God to so turn around the situation that these basic foodstuffs suddenly become hard to get, especially in the cities? No, nothing. It's not difficult to conceive of it. Well, neither should it be difficult to conceive of God withdrawing his written word. You know, you only have to go back to the 16th century. I know some of you will think that's a long time. Others who have perhaps lived 80 or 90 years will realize it's not that long a time. You've only got to go back to the 16th century to find that the Bible was a prohibited book. William Tyndale, of course, was strangled and burnt at the stake for just translating it into English. We're now a quarter of the way into the 21st century, and it's not so difficult to see how it might be a prohibited book again. All that needs to happen is that it be reclassified as hate speech. Is that beyond the bound of reason? No. Not to me, anyway. It's easy to see how a new version of the Bible could be edited for official approval and official reading one that was deemed fit for public consumption. Neither, in the same way, is it difficult to conceive of some of the churches in the land being classed as centers of fundamentalism and radicalism and closed, unless they adopt a new edited version of the Bible to be read. You think it's far-fetched? I don't. If you think it's far-fetched, it's... Are you just ignoring the fact that that's the state of affairs in other countries? Do you think we're too good for that? 
In fact, if you think it can't happen, it probably will. Because all it takes for it to happen is for a lot of people to think that it can't. Or if you think it can't happen, you simply don't know your history, and neither have you really come to grips with the evil of fallen human nature. The devil wants that. He wants the word that's been let loose to be restrained again. He wants it to be hidden away. He wants it out of every house. He wants it out of the church. He wants it out of our courts of law. He wants it out of the House of Commons. He wants it out of the House of Lords. He wants it out of the royal palaces. And do you think it's beyond him? God might very well agree to such a thing. If he is weary of our sin and of our contempt and our blasphemy. So the famine might take the form of God withdrawing his written word. But then again, and this may be as more likely, that the famine might involve a withdrawal of his preached word. And I want you to notice that what the text actually says, and I suppose sometimes we we misquote it or we don't quote it carefully enough. The text actually says, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land of hearing the words of the Lord. And there I would suggest to you that the emphasis is on the preaching of the word. The famine is a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Now, God, in his grace and mercy, has given preachers to the church. And they are stewards of the mysteries of God. They are entrusted with the treasury of both Old and New Testaments. And they're commissioned to open up that word to give it sense, to explain it, and to apply it to the people. Now, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the blessing when our teachers, he says, are no longer in a corner. When our teachers are no longer in a corner. In fact, let me just uh, quote that to you. We have it in the 30th chapter and in verse 20. Now, let let me read this and listen to this. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. And I can't actually mention that without noting, by the way, notice how losing the teachers of the word is a bigger catastrophe than eating the bread of adversity and drinking the water of affliction. In other words, whatever affliction God sends your way, the removal of the teachers of his own word is worse than that. Read it again. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. Indeed, he says, yes, your eyes will see your teachers and your ears shall hear their word. You shall hear the word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Your eyes shall see your teachers and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Now, this may be a little open to interpretation, but your eyes seeing your teachers is uh, the teacher of the word, the the preacher of the gospel, preaching to you in front of you. And I think the 
voice behind you that is saying, this is the way, walk in it, is, I think, the voice of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's the Holy Spirit, as it were, sealing the word upon you, saying, yes, this is the word, this is the way, and this is the old path. Now walk in it. And the blessing there is that your teachers have not been moved into a corner. They have, they have not been taken away from you. Your eyes see your teachers. Um, I suppose it's not exactly the same meaning, of course, but it is interesting that your own eyes are not seeing your own teacher right now. Um, of course, many eyes maybe still are, but the fact is that we're not gathered in the house of God and we're not seeing our teachers as we are accustomed at least to seeing them. These things need to make us think. So your teachers are not removed into a corner, but God may move your teachers into a corner. By that, he takes them away. Now, <clears throat> he can do that in judgment. And if you, if you wonder when he might have done that in the past, well, I think I refer to one incident of that just a few weeks ago when we were looking at Ahab and Elijah. You'll remember in Elijah's day, the churches had been taken over by mongrel ministers who were part worshippers of Jehovah and part worshippers of Baal. A hundred true prophets of God who hadn't been killed, there were a hundred true prophets left, Obadiah had taken them and put them in two caves, 50 to a cave. The last public minister was Elijah himself. He didn't know about these hundred people and thought he was largely on his own. But <clears throat> uh, Elijah, of course, was, was withdrawn too. God took him away beside the brook Cherith. Now, the result of that was that there was no public preacher of the word of God in Israel in those dark days of Ahab. Now think of that. that. That's almost unthinkable in that covenanted nation that there was no public teacher of the word. In other words, the, the true religion, the true faith was preserved in families, in family worship, and perhaps in local teachers up and down in local synagogues. And again, perhaps in fear of life, largely like the days of the covenanters, when people worshipped on the hillside, when some people had to be armed and to be on the lookout for the king's armies. But what about the strange silence that was imposed upon Ezekiel, the prophet to the captives in Babylon? When, uh, when the captives were taken captive, they resented it bitterly at first. And uh, they felt that God had let them down. And um, one thing that God did was that he actually silenced the prophet for a time. In chapter 3 and verse 26, we read, and this is what God says to Ezekiel, I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and you shall not be one to rebuke them. You'll notice, by the way, that having a rebuke taken from you is a curse. It's a curse. I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and you shall not rebuke them. That is God silencing the preaching of the word. And of course, God can double that judgment or make it worse by allowing false teachers to abound. And uh, he allows it because they want it. They want it. 
Paul tells Timothy and he warns Timothy against people who heap up teachers for themselves having itching ears. So they like to be scratched in a certain way, so they appoint certain kinds of teachers for themselves. God never sent these people, yet they ran and God allowed them to run. So God can remove his preached word. Now, I think there's a third way in which God can remove his word too. As well as removing his word written and his word preached, and perhaps this might be difficult to distinguish from the removal of the preached word, but I think it's worth a separate category. God can remove his empowered word. In other words, he can withdraw his spirit from the preparation or delivery of that word. Now, sometimes the word of God is preached with power, but it doesn't really prevail upon the people. That may be a strange thing, but it is undoubtedly true. But sometimes, too, God may just withhold the Holy Spirit from those who are proclaiming the word of God, perhaps because they're not diligent in their proclamation of the word of God. And they're suddenly shorn of their ability, ability that they seem to have in other areas. But when it comes suddenly to the opening up of the word and to the application of it, there's nothing there. Nothing there. It's almost inexplicable. Because you you feel they could almost do anything else. But they can't do this very thing that they're supposed to do. Now, the thing about withdrawing the empowered word is this, that I suppose it's something that precedes the removal of the, of, the, of the preacher itself. But the thing about it is that it can happen when there's plenty sermons and plenty Bibles. Um, the, the, the lack of power with the preachers means that you can go to church You could hear the word read, and then there's nothing. There's nothing. And sadly, you could traverse the land. You could listen to a thousand preachers, and you could say, if you're really wanting to be watered with the word, you could only say what the ancient mariner said in Coleridge's famous poem, when he was stranded at sea, Water, water everywhere, not any drop to drink. Water, water anywhere, not any drop to drink. Is that not what it's like, going up and down the churches of our lands? There's not a drop to drink. Is there a famine of the land in the United Kingdom? Is there a famine of the land? Is there a famine of the word? in the United Kingdom or in Scotland? Well, it depends how you look at it. You know, you could say, oh, well, you know, there isn't. There's an abundance of of preaching and I only have to press a couple of buttons on my computer and I can access uh, preaching anywhere in the world. Well, that's very true. But there is another way of looking at it. If you, if you were to go back 4,000 years to Egypt, And if you are going back to Joseph's day, there was a famine in the land. 
In fact, there was a severe famine, a seven-year famine. But if you were in Egypt, you'd be fine because the storehouses had been filled with a provision God had given Joseph that wisdom to make preparation for a severe famine that would come upon the land. And so the storehouses were filled with grain, so much so that people came from other countries to receive that grain. So they were fine. They had food. But there was still a famine in the land. The fact that a provision was stored somewhere didn't take away from the fact that there was a a dearth in the land. And sometimes I think the spiritual situation is not much different. And when it comes to the preaching of the word, it's not much different. You can indeed have access. I mean, this sermon, like countless other sermons, thousands, thousands of sermons today will go online. It will go on to a site like Sermon Audio. It will provide a kind of storehouse for you. And some people will say that the sermons that they access in such a storehouse sustains them and keeps them. But it's masking the fact. It's masking the fact that there is a famine of the word of God in the land. The reality is around us that there's a dearth in the pulpits. There's a dearth of the living word of God, proclaimed with life, with unction, with conviction, preached in faithfulness, preached in truth. To the glory of God, there's a lack of it. And the fact that there's a storehouse filled in our computers, well, it may be good that there is, but it masks the reality of the situation. It masks it. Now, if God withdraws his word, either written, preached, or empowered, you've got to pray that that word returns. Pray that God would send laborers. Pray that God would raise up preachers. Pray that God would send the Spirit to empower them. Pray that the Spirit might breathe upon these dry bones, that they might truly live. Pray for a hearing ear and an understanding heart. Pray for the Word of God to have free course amongst us and to live, to be fruitful. But don't leave it all too late. Um, Bad choices in life, in your work and in your life generally, bad choices can take you away from the word of God, which is really the word of God being taken from you. When we read in Genesis 4 that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, that was just as much God removing his presence from Cain as Cain removing himself from God. Um, there's the two ways of looking at it. You turning your back on God may well be God turning his back on you. In the Bible, there were some characters who seemed to appreciate the word of God for a time, but they didn't appreciate it properly. They didn't yield to it, yield to its demands. They didn't esteem it more than gold or silver or more than their necessary food. We're told that when Herod listened to John the Baptist, preach he did many things how suggestive is that what do you think he did Um, we can't help but think and speculate he heard him often and he sent in order to hear him and he did many things but he ended up organizing the beheading of john the baptist and when he heard 
of Jesus preaching, he thought it was John the Baptist, perhaps come back from the dead. Obviously, his conscience was troubled. But when he got his chance at last to speak to the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus famously answered him, not a word, not a word, a silent God. Herod found himself face to face with a famine of the word of God. He had had his day. He had had his day. Saul, too, was a young man who was humble, head and shoulders above everyone else, and identified by the whole of the people of Israel as the man to be king. But he started a terrible habit of rejecting the word of God and of being deliberately disobedient in times of crisis. And on the last night of Saul's life, on the last night of a desperate life, a desperate night in a desperate life, he can't find the word of God anywhere. You'll notice that he's looking for it. He finds a witch, a witch, a witch that in his better day he had actually exiled from the land when he was a different kind of man. He, he then puts out a search party to find a witch. And when he finds a witch, we're told that he says to her that when he inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Sorry, that's what it says about him in the scripture, that when he inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. And then he says himself to the witch that the Lord has departed from me and does not answer me anymore. How awful a thing that is. How awful a thing that is when you can't find the word of God. Once upon a time, it was everywhere. And now when you're looking for it, you can't find it because you abused it and you ignored it too much in your life. Saul that night is a dead man walking because God's far away. Now, let me leave you with this finally. How do we prevent this? How do you prevent a famine of the word of God? Well, really, it's very simple. I mentioned at the beginning that we sometimes don't understand what we have until we lose it. Well then, understand what you've got. Value the word of God. Value it written. Stop leaving it on your bookshelf or on your coffee table. Take it up. Read it. Value the word of God preached. Attend it. Listen to it. Receive it. Value the word of God empowered. Pray for the Spirit to accompany it. Pray for the Spirit to bring life-giving power. Remember what the Lord said, that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Remember that the word is spirit, and it is life. Remember that the words of God reveal Christ. They Impart Christ to your soul. Remember that they sustain your spiritual life. Remember that they develop the spiritual life of Christ in you. And like Job, say meaningfully that you esteem the word of God more than your necessary food. Value it. Value it like that and you won't lose it. Treat it lightly. Dismiss it and ignore it, and one day you'll find that when you need it, it's nowhere to be found because God has withdrawn it from you.
We may think that the famine of bread and of water is the most fearful thing that can come upon us. Or a, or a plague or a pestilence that was wiping us out. But remember this, friends. Remember this. A famine of bread can only kill your body. But a famine of the word of God will kill your soul. Value it. May the Lord bless our meditation on his word.